You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. She also did a study of Dooley, which is like every single script in the English-speaking world, and found that if it was written by, a, written by a man with a male protagonist, it was most likely to be produced. If it was written by a man with a female protagonist, it was the second most likely to be produced. It was written by a woman with a male protagonist, it was the third likely to be produced. And if it was written by a woman with a female protagonist, it really didn't have much of a shot. So that was pretty shocking. And we got a third New York Times article. So all those articles came out in around a year. Boom, boom, boom. And the next programmable year, it went from 12.5% to 38.9%. It was amazing. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. You're listening to the Producers Perspective Podcast with your host, Tony Award winner, Ken Davenport. Hey everybody, it's Ken Davenport here. Uh, in just a few moments, we're going to get to the podcast with Julia Jordan, where she's going to tell you this shocking story about how she had to change her play to get it produced. You won't believe it, and it's one of the reasons she's such an advocate for gender parity in the theater. Uh, make sure you listen all the way through to get that story. In the meantime, this podcast is brought to you by Daniel Rader Photography. Visit DanielRaderPhoto.com for all of your photography needs for your show, for your headshot, for whatever it is. I was just on Daniel's website. We've used him a bunch of times. He does great work. And I just love his philosophy about photography. Listen to this quote. The photos act as a passport. At their best, they transport us to the time, place, and heart of remarkable moments. I mean, that's the type of person you want taking your photos. So check out Daniel Rader, R-A-D-E-R, photo.com, and give him a shout if you need some photos for your show. And now, on to the podcast. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Producers Perspective podcast. My name is Ken Davenport. I'm thrilled you're with us today. I want to thank you all for the positive comments you've been throwing up on iTunes and everywhere, actually. And if you haven't done so, please give us a good review and throw up a comment for us. I'd appreciate it, as would our guests. And speaking of guests, we have a very, very talented playwright on the podcast today. I want you to welcome the very highly decorated playwright, Julia Jordan. Welcome, Julia. Thank you for having me. So Julia is a fellow like 18 times over. She is a Jonathan Larson Award winner, a Juilliard Playwright Fellow, an MTC Fellow, Lucille Lortel Fellow, a Kleban Award winner. Uh, she is the writer behind Murder Ballad, which I was a big fan of both at MTC and you moved downtown Thank as you. well. I assume that's being done all over the country now. Yes. Also, I was a huge fan of The Mice, part of Harold Prince's three, the three one-acts. Sarah Planetall, The Moscow Circus, Winter Queen, Dark Yellow Boy, many, many, many others. She's the founder of the Lilies Awards, which was started to honor the work of women in the theater. And she has been very involved in conducting a very interesting and important study on gender parity in the theater, which we're going to get to in a little bit. But I wanted to start with this. Is it true that before you were in the theater, you moved to New York to become a painter? That is true. I um, originally was just interested in the visual arts. All my high school years were dedicated to that. I lived in the studio, and then I just had to come to New York, so I only applied to schools in New York City. And I got here and found out that I was um, a big fish in, or a, yeah, a big fish in a very small pond back in Minnesota, and adjusted my desires and, uh, yeah, segued from one thing to another and eventually theater. So you came here to be a painter and you're like, wow, there's so many artists here. I should try something else. So you jumped into the theater because there's no competition there. <laughs> well, I think what I did was I, I discovered and I, I often, when I, I used to teach, I'd say, you know, it's very important to know what your talents are, but it's very important to know what they're not. You see a lot of people, you know, really pursuing something and it's not actually what they're the best at. And I think that's, I love drawing, but I was never going to be a real artist. And I've always read and was always writing. My mom always said I was going to be a writer and I'd be like, no, absolutely not. It sounded boring and quiet. So um, I started working in restaurants and all of the other waiters were in acting school and it sounded like they were having a lot more fun than I was in college, college. They started bringing scenes in to study before they, their, you know, their work started. And I don't know, I guess I started becoming their literature consultant, explaining to them what the Shakespeare scene was actually about, got more and more interested in what they were doing and the scripts themselves and went to an acting school. And I had this wonderful teacher, Mr. Pinter at the neighborhood playhouse who, after they, they assigned the personal monologue. So you're supposed to write something that happened in your past and then give it as a monologue, but it was true to you. So you didn't have to do that sort of work to take on another character. I wrote one that went really, really well. 
and made everybody cry. It was a little bit of a cheat. I was lying a tiny bit. Um, There's some embellishment going on, but it went well. And then Pinter said to me that he wanted me to bring in um, three pages of writing every week and meet with him privately. And I would bring those pages in and I would hand them to him and he would put them in a drawer and then he would just say, okay, now who's sleeping with who? And we would just talk about trash, about everyone. You know, I kept him updated. He never said a word about the work. He never said a word about the writing, but he made me do three pages a week. And then we had a gossip session. It was like one of the greatest teaching moments. I mean, it was just, I love him so much. I want to, I I love that story because I am such a big believer in just producing stuff, no pun intended. No matter what you're doing, whether you're painting, whether you're writing, whether you're producing theater, whether you're, I don't know, becoming a professional golfer, it's just out there and doing whatever Mm -hmm. it is you want to do. But I want to go back to this very insightful, objective moment you had about yourself and your skills as a painter. You were how old when you were like, well, I'm, I'm good, but I'm not that good. 18, 19. So that's a very young age to have that kind of objectivity. Do you know what, was there a moment? I'm very opinionated. (laughs) Um, Even about yourself. No, honestly, I just, I just looked around and I heard, I just listened and I heard and I was just like, wow, you know what? My heart isn't as deeply in this. I didn't. Yeah, I could just, when you're in a, in a painting class or a drawing class and you walk around and you see everyone's work, I mean, it's, if you have a feeling for the arts, it's pretty obvious, you know, like if you hear a lot of poets back to back, it's really obvious, you know, you feel it when you go into the theater, you know, when it's on fire, you know, you just do. It's so true. And I think there's a, there's two types of people that come to New York because I had the exact same story. So I came to New York to be a performer and I went to Tisch at NYU and I came in like, I am amazing because I came from, I just did West Side Story. Yeah, I got a bunch Watch of awards. Community theater. <laughs> it's going to be fantastic. And I was fine. I yeah. was fine. Right. But I started to look around at all these other people going like, oh, oh, that, that's a real performer. Right exactly. There. Yeah. And I had two choices, pack up and go home, mm-hmm. right? And be a lawyer. Mm-hmm. or find something else in the business or the art that I still loved, which I obviously did mm-hmm. uh, in producing. And it sounds like you did the same thing. Yeah. And then I did it again after acting school. I auditioned. I was an actress for one day. I literally went on one day of auditions. And at the end of it, I was like, yeah, I'm not doing this. I'm just not doing it. Like, no, <laughs> absolutely. I didn't like the life. I didn't like the process. I didn't like what I was being allowed to audition for, I was like, I could do better than that, you know? So it, be, it was very obvious to me. So what gave you the confidence to say, oh, but this writing thing, this is for me. I got this. I can do this. People's response. I could see that it was affecting people. After I wrote that first monologue at school, my girlfriend started using it as an audition piece. And then they were all, we were all auditioning for the same stuff, or they were. And so they were, can we have some more of them? Because, you know, they were going back to back and doing the exact same piece. So I was like, okay. So I came up with a couple more, and then I had a bunch of them. And then a friend of mine's boyfriend started a theater company up in the Bronx called the Belmont Italian American Playhouse. And it was literally financed by all the merchants on uh, 
Yeah, in Belmont. So his first show, it was really funny. It was me and Gyrgis. And I can't remember the third person, but there was just like these sort of one acts. I think it was pretty early in Stephen's career too. I mean, we had never met each other. So they did three of my monologues as a piece of this evening. And I was sitting next to, it was just all the local merchants. So they each had like, you know, like Mike's cheese shop, you know, and like a little plaques on every single chair. And they're all in the beginning. It took a while to start the show because everybody was looking for their own chair that had their name on it. And I was sitting next to this woman who primarily spoke Italian. She only spoke a little English. She was an elderly woman and she was watching the show. She had no idea that I had written it. And she kept like grabbing my hand and laughing and crying and just like shaking my hand and sort of talking back a little bit. And it was, I just spent the entire night. I didn't even take it seriously. I hadn't really attended the rehearsals. I was like, yeah, you can do whatever you want in the Bronx. I'll come, you know? And then I spent the entire night just like watching her watch it. And I was like, okay, this, I'm going to, I'm going to write a real one. You know, not just a monologue. I'm going to see if I can get people to talk to each other. And I had gone to the Playhouse, and Meisner was kind of great. It's kind of great training for writers. And what was the first full-length play where people actually spoke to each other? I did. I wrote a 10-minute play called Night Swim that is still done a lot, actually. It's like, it was at Humana, and it was, it's been published a bunch of times, and I still get tons of requests for it. It's based on a true story. It's about two girls who went skinny dipping and got caught by the police. And then the police asked us, this is actually a true story about me, but it asked me and my girlfriend to like come out of the lake because we grew up in Minnesota without our clothes. And we were like, mm, no at first. And then, but they were really met and they had flashlights and the whole bed. And finally I did. And then she followed me and it was really traumatic. And then um, the next summer, Tanya, who's my good friend, who just, just literally just visited me last week, was like, let's go skinny, skinny dipping because it's Minnesota. It's hot, whatever. I don't know. So she was like, let's do it. And I was like, I don't really want to because I'm kind of scared about it. And she talked me into it. And so the, that's the play, her talking me into it. Wow. Yeah. How much of your, so you do that, did that thing of like, I wrote what I know, right? It's a true story from your life. How much of all of your work is based on some, essence of truth from your life is that where you get a lot of your ideas half your ideas none of your ideas you know i think initially there's always something that's a touchstone or is like if you put my true life into like a refracting mirror and change genders and the country and the time period and that kind of stuff there's always something, but this, I just, I hadn't written a play for 10 years and I just wrote one and it's the most straight up true thing I've ever written. So we'll see. What's the difference between writing a play and a musical for you? Is it the same process? Is it? No, it's not. And sometimes I think if my plays were more informed by my musicals, my musicals more informed by my plays, it would really get somewhere. But, um... <laughs> Now, when I do musicals, I think because I started writing them for children, but I think also just, I think it's just true. At least it's true for me because I write a story. You know, I really do write a beginning, middle, and end. 
for me, it's all about clarity, especially when you're working with other people and they have to really know exactly where you are and exactly what the scene needs. And songs can, you know, there's some that are very effective at really moving the plot along, but sometimes they're as much as we want them to be actually not as effective as they could be or as not as they could be, but as, as the scene can be as terms of being really, really heard. So clarity, the scene surrounding that moment of transition um, has to be, I think, really tight. And when I'm writing a play, I think I have, I feel more of a sense of writer indulgence. Do you think anything can be made into a musical? Any idea? Or does it have to have a certain something? I'm not formally educated in musicals, so I would go with, I think anything could, but I can't promise that I could do every, anything. There's probably somebody. I don't know. I mean, it depends on the audience, too, right? What kind of audience are you going for? When you write, that's an interesting question. When you write, what audience do you write for? When you sit down and write a play, who are you writing for? Are you writing for yourself? Do you, are you thinking, oh, this is for a Broadway audience, a dinner theater audience, a children's audience? Or do you think about them at all? I do think about them a lot. I think when I write for children, I have and I've always been told that the stuff is too advanced for the kids that I'm going at. And they're, they are always wrong. <laughs> the kids are far, they're far more, they're only interested in what they don't understand or what's beyond them. So there's that. I think about that a lot. But I also think about like demographic audience I, you know, I guess I'm writing for my people. I'm writing for my group, mostly, specifically. But I, I don't think my work is, my work is not very far to the side. It's pretty straight down the middle. It really is. I mean, for the audience that already attends theater. But I am very, some writers find this sort of gross or offensive, but I'm very into being in control of the audience's response. I I think that's why I've been attracted to murders and mysteries is because I really like to know, I find it really fascinating to have readings and find out all the different ways that people are taking in the information and where, you know, the sweet spot of the vast majority of the audience actually understands what you think they should be understanding. I know a lot of other writers in work that they do, they're more, they are like, whatever you see in it, it's fine. But specifically when I'm doing like a, you know, a murder mystery. I really want people to follow the plot points exactly. So I'm interested in, in eliciting specific responses and having reversals and being in, more in control of that. But that I don't know, maybe that'll change. But that's where I've been recently. I know you've taught playwriting in the past. And what's the biggest flaw that, or mistake, we'll call it for lack of a better word, that you see from new playwrights or new writers uh, starting off? with their first or second play? Well, I don't know I, that I even think in those terms. I'm, I'm always sort of surprised at, like, I'm not surprised, but I think every, people are doing different kinds of plays, you know? Like, if I go so, see um, a Will Eno play, like, that's not what I'm trying to do, but I'm, like, in awe of it, you know? Like, that's cool, you know? <laughs> so I don't think I really think about that, but I do sometimes think that... It's sad to me because I personally love this kind of theater that sometimes I think 
in the past generation or two, we've kind of abdicated plot to film and TV. And I don't think we should. Yeah, I'm a big believer of that. Yeah, I really don't think we should. I mean, I was once asked to go and do like a guest teach spot at a very fancy play writing program. And they sent me all the writer's scripts and I was like, wow, I'd like to talk about plot. And they literally said, um, we don't teach plot here. You I was like, well, me. you kind of should because it's a, it's beautiful writing, but it doesn't actually need to be on a, you know. It's one of the, um, why I was such a huge fan of the ferryman, um, because there's a real plot driven story there. And actually, yeah. you know, I've, he's, he's a brilliant writer and everything I've seen, I was like, that's a brilliant writer. And he's having a lot of fun. But with the ferryman, it was so much different than the other stuff for me because yeah. it was such a story, so yeah. heavy on plot. It's, it is really fascinating. You know, I haven't gone into the, into TV because my life is so, tied to New York and I have children and the lilies started just as all the playwrights went to TV, but almost all of my close friends, and I'm not going to say all, but a lot of them had to really, after being accomplished playwrights go, Oh my God, to do this, I have to learn how this plot thing works. You know? <laughs> and I was like, all right, it's not hard and it's really fun. You know? <laughs> So you've had a lot of success uh, in, in the video stuff off Broadway. Sounds like even the ten minute play is being licensed and done all over the place, but no Broadway show as of yet. No. Does that bum you out? No. So why not? A lot of people. It come does to not York. help that you know. I mean, it doesn't hurt that I luckily am married to a doctor, so I don't. You know, I don't need it. The other thing is, I I don't think. I mean, Murder Ballad is probably my most commercial show. I think, I don't know. Like, the ideas that I come up with in and of myself just don't scream Broadway. But I am starting to write something that might be more in that world just because of who the composer is. But, you know, we'll see. So you don't sit down and say, oh, I'm going to write a Broadway show now. I'm going to no, I don't think very many people do, but... I mean, it, honestly, it seemed to the stuff that I love on Broadway usually was not written to be on Broadway. You know, it happened to catch fire and sort of graduate, you know. Like what? What's some of your favorite things you've seen in the last few years? I mean, Hamilton, you know, I don't think I don't think he was like, Broadway ship, you know, <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean. Do you have any, what's your process for writing? Do you have, do you sit down at the same time every day? Do you have office hours no get you through writer's block no i'm a mom and so ever since i you know childcare is a really big thing to the lilies for this reason but i think when i started having kids your time is different i mean it's just not your own just doesn't belong to you anymore and so when i before i had kids i if i was writing a play i would basically just hole up for a month and i'd walk out of and have a play, you know, I would just stay up all night. And that's, I think one of the reasons why I started writing more musicals is they're more piecemeal, you know, that's just more practical. There's more craft and not like, Oh my God, I have to have my Jack Daniels and buy a pack of cigarettes. Like that's not really as necessary So, and you know, you can write a song a day. And then the lilies just became a huge part of my life. And honestly, for the past few years, I think I'm kind of segueing out of it now in a weird way, even though it's a bigger deal 
than ever. But when I wake up in the morning and I'm like, somebody needs numbers or I need to call that person. I need to do something for the lilies. And then my writing deadlines are kind of my own and it's more fluid and, you know, it's hard. It's like got taken over. So tell, you've mentioned the lilies. Tell everyone exactly what the lilies is in your words, which are better than mine. So the lilies started when um, Sarah Shulman, who's a playwright, emailed me saying it was her birthday and she wanted to have a party, but she wanted it to be all playwrights. And we came from sort of different schools. So I knew a group of writers and she knew a different group of writers. And she's like, let's get all the ladies together and bitch about this season because it was abysmal. And then she wrote me this email and she listed all of the major theaters that were producing exactly zero women that year. And it was really long. It was longer than usual. And at that point, you know, all of the statistics and we were kind of used to the one in five, one in four model. Explain to everyone what that So is. most theaters would have you do, you know, that did like four or five plays would do four white men and then one either woman or person of color. So this year, for some bizarre reason, I think, you know, every once in a while they would just do an all white male season. But this one year a lot of them did the all white male season at the same time. So it was pretty, yeah. So we, she sent me this email, and this was twelve years ago now. So the going That's viral it idea like was almost years ago. That yeah, would happen not twelve years. No, ago. it was twelve. And honestly, a lot has changed then. At that time, going viral was like a big, like newish idea, but it went viral. So we thought we were inviting, you know, fifteen people to come have wine at New Dramatists, and. We started getting RSVPs from over 100. People just started passing around. People flew in from Los Angeles and Seattle. It was like a coming together. So Todd London was running New Dramatist at the time. And he was like, the New York Times has just heard about it. And they want to write an article. And I was like, oh, my God. We're going to have to like do something besides like buy cheap wine. So I started... Yeah, he was like, you have to give a speech. I was like, okay. So I, you know, that's when I first started actually researching it. Up to then, it was just personal pissed off. And then I started like looking at all these gender studies and I'm like, I had never studied gender classes in college. So I didn't really have any specific knowledge about it whatsoever. So I started reading all these studies and I was like, wow, all this research has been done. The orchestra study, the orchestra's auditioning behind the curtains. So I gave this speech, and at that meeting, we all, all the women there decided, and one man, I think it was Adam Bach, and David Ajme came too. I think they were the only two men. They were supporters. So they came. They, we all decided that we need to speak to the artistic directors directly. So that was a problem because they didn't really want to come. Tim Sanford was the funniest because he said, he already had a good record for producing women. And he was like, well, I'm not come because all the other artistic directors will hate me because they make them look bad. <laughs> so I talked him into it. But they all ended up coming. And it was really, they really did come. 
And we had another meeting, and again, it was over 100 people, and the Times did another article about it. And then, because I'd been reading all these studies, I just emailed Cecilia Rouse, who now runs the whole economics department at Princeton, and she became, she was on the Obama's first economic council. I mean, she's a huge deal. I called her up or emailed her and asked her if maybe we could do a study about women in theater because she had done the orchestra study. And she was like, well, let's have coffee. I'm like, okay. So I went out there and she essentially gave me her star student. And so Emily Sands was being courted by all of the programs across the country, Chicago, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, all of them. And she had been out at Chicago where I just happened to have gone to high school with Steve Levitt of Freakonomics. And I had asked him as well, do you want to, we need some help, you know? So he pitched my idea to Emily when she was visiting in Chicago. And then she came back to Princeton and Cecilia pitched the exact same idea to her. So she was like, okay. So then Emily ended up doing this, this big study with a blind study in it where we sent out scripts with male and female names on the exact same script and of course, if it was male, it was more likely to be produced. And they did a Broadway study, which showed that work by women made more money per week, but was closed earlier. And she also did a study of Dooley, which is like every single script in the English-speaking world, and found that if it was written by a white man, written by, no, not white man, no race, written by a man with a male protagonist, it was most likely to be produced. If it was written by a man with a female protagonist, it was the second most likely to be produced. It was written by a woman with a male protagonist, it was the third likely to be produced. And if it was written by a woman with a female protagonist, it really didn't have much of a shot. So that was pretty shocking. And we got a third New York Times article. So all those articles came out in around a year. Boom, boom, boom. And the next programmable year, it went from 12.5% to 38.9%. It was amazing. In one year? In, well, a year and a half. So, yes. So then at the end of that year, all of the, you know, the award season happened and they didn't get nominated. And it was bizarre. I mean, that was the year that, like, Annie Baker had two plays. Sarah Rule had two plays. Becca Brunstadter was her first one. Melissa James Gibson's play, This, was at Playwrights Horizons, was nominated for exactly nothing, even though it was the biggest ticket seller that they had had since Grey Gardens, and it wasn't a musical, and it didn't have stars. And the New York Times had called it the best play of the season. I mean, not even nominated by anyone. So we were a little bit shocked at that. And we decided, well, we'll just have our own awards. So Tim gave us, Sanford gave us Playwrights Horizons, and we essentially just made a list of people we wanted to give awards to, called them up and said, you want to get an award? And they said, yes, we do. And we booked a party at the West Bank Cafe afterwards. And we were just like, come on, come on. It's free. And we just had our own awards, and it was really fun. How many years now? This will be our 10th anniversary That's this year. And it's years. really grown since then. Since then, people started coming, and producers like Daryl Roth and Stacey Mendich were like, we want 
do we have money? Do you want to give it away? And we're like, yes, we do. So now we have all these grants. The New York Women's Foundation gives us one. So we give, um, I think, three writing awards. Now that we've got a Williamstown Award, too. So it's writing, composing. We have the biggest award for a musical theater composer. Design, which is huge because women are so underrepresented there, especially women of color, and directing. I mean, this almost a hundred thousand dollars a this year. Is a revolution now, changing people's lives, changing the face of the American theater—literally, what it looks like—all because of one email and a birthday and hey, let's get together and bitch, which. It seems interesting to me because two major life-changing moments in your life have been someone saying, hey, let's get together and gossip <laughs> <laughs> from your first playwriting teacher uh, to now, which is amazing. So talk a little bit about how this... What is, women do. How, <laughs> how it's evolved into the count and what the count is and, and this ongoing study. So the next thing that happened with the Lilies is Lilies were founded by... Marsha Norman, Teresa Reback, and myself. So it never hurt having those two because they could pull in some, you know, some power players. So Marsha, we were all on the council at the Guild, and we started talking about Vita had started. You know Vita? Vita is an organization that started literally counting how many contributors there were to The New Yorker and Atlantic and magazines. And I had met with the woman who started that. And so we were like, we should be doing that for theater because the numbers that we pulled for New York City actually made a difference. So why shouldn't we do it for the country? So it was a lot of years of like talking about such a major project. And then Stephen Schwartz just kind of threw up his hands. And he was like, you're doing it. I'm like, okay. So we did it together with the Guild. We sort of like ran it, but the Guild gave us resources, people. We used the guild's uh, representatives across the country to sort of figure out what theaters should be watched across the country. So, and we focus on living writers and the canon that's being created today. So O'Neill's not included. Shakespeare's not included. A lot of, you know, but if, but August Wilson is, you know, so like things that are really happening today. Yeah, that's what it is. So obviously things are getting better, yeah, but not where they should be. No. What can the listeners out there do to help this get a little bit better? Well, it seems to me like awareness is is what's really dr- driving it, and I think also you know obviously it's not just the lilies. There's a big cultural change in the past ten years with just. Diversity is everybody knows what that word means now. Nobody talks about oh, theater needs to be a meritocracy and men are just better playwrights, which is what they would literally say before, you know, like without any shame whatsoever. So honestly, I think that people need to understand that it's not there yet. And I think everyone needs to understand that the women so far, when I look at so I went through every single theater for the past three years. The women who have benefited the most in the past three years are younger women who are just now sort of coming onto the scene. Mostly white women, but women of color too. The women over 50 who really kind of did this have not. So they are missing. 
and women of color are still really underrepresented. So if we, we can do two things if we want parity. We can wait for, you know, the older generation to literally die and then keep producing the younger women. Or we could start paying attention to that because everyone's, you know, it's a youth focused industry. I don't, it doesn't really make sense because we're not, there's no, we're, you know, we're not selling our looks, you know, whatever. I mean, you think that people would get better at writing as they get older, as they do in other genres. But I think the, the programs, you know, your Juilliards and Yales, and they give producers a curated list to read. And I think the Kilroy's list is is compiled from those readers. So it's very skewed, very, very young, very new writer. And if we want parody, we ha- it's, you're going to have to include the older generations and you're going to have to include more women of color of every single age because that's who's missing. Do you have any specific stories when you were coming up of facing gender bias very directly, like you said? Yeah, I... So I wrote a play called Tatiana Color, which eventually was produced. It took about 10 years. I won some awards. It was in Best Plays of 1997, though it had never been produced. I mean, it was it was very odd. Eventually was. But before it was, when it won an award, there would always be a reading. And I found out from a, one of the directors of the readings that the artistic director had said, um, would you like to direct this play? It's very good. It will never be produced. <laughs> and I had people who flat out say to me, if you wrote with a male protagonist, it would get done. It's just too much to be female and writing about women. And then, you know, years later, the Emily Sand study was like, it was true. You know, it was factually true. So I wrote, I literally got really depressed. It'd been 10 years. All my, the two men in my playwriting program at Juilliard were like, already had full on careers with Stephen Belber and Dave Auburn. And Dave came over to my boat one day and sat on the back. And I was like, I don't know, I might have to quit because I, this is getting old 10 years of just like nothing. And he said, why don't you just switch the gender? He's like, don't write a different play, just switch the gender. So I literally did that. I wrote an odd a pretty autobiographical play. And um, I just made myself a boy and I called it boy. I had a production before it was finished being written. Well, that's not what we want the next generation <laughs> to have to do. So no, I, I talk to young women now and yeah. they're like, their jaws hit the floor. They've never heard that. Nobody's that's ever good. said well, anything to them like that. Because of the work that you are doing. So thank you for that. I'm going... First of all, where can people learn more about the lilies? The-lilies.org is our website. And it's everything on there from childcare to harassment stuff to the count. And what's coming up next for you? I'm starting a new musical. Can you tease anything for us? I can't really say anything about it yet. (laughs) Uh, Where can people find out more about your stuff? Website? uh, Are you on the social media? No, I'm bad about that. No. No, I have an agent. That's it. All right. I'm going to ask you my last question now, which is my genie question. I have a feeling I know what the answer is going to be, but we're going to go for it anyway. So I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin comes to visit you. Uh, We ask this of all of our guests. And the genie wants to grant you one wish. 
What's the one thing that makes you so angry about the theater, Broadway in general, that you'd ask this genie to wish away? What gets you frustrated? Oh, I thought you were going to be open-ended, and I was going to go, I want a Great Dane puppy. Um, <laughs> well, you could say that they don't allow Great Dane puppies really in the theater. That's what I really want. In the theater, and I... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, that we all, of course, we know that the, your frustration about yeah, yeah, yeah. female uh, and, and gender parity is a big one, but we've covered that, so you can't say uh, that. Shit. Oops. Can you I can say, say that? shit all you want. <laughs> okay. I love it when we get the explicit rating on iTunes. <laughs> You know, this is a little bit weird, but I wish theater was sexier. In what way? I don't know. I just think sometimes I think it's just like people don't ever write about it. And write about sex? Yeah, and it seems kind of weird to me. It you seems like it's... it seems like I mean I know it's because it's live. People are like, ew, it doesn't work on stage. But like, make it work. Figure it out. I don't know. It seems like what a great subject matter, and people don't really do it. You know, and just kind of that's another one. We just like here you go, film and TV, take it. You know, it's like well. I actually, it's a very interesting question because I ran into a white male director Uh that was very nervous in today's day and age to do a play about sex. Oh, and he flat out said that? Yeah. Do you think it's harder to do a story, a play about sex or a musical about sex in today's day and age? I think there's, you know, plot and sex. We were just like, okay, film does it better. And I think, well, no, film, film just does it differently. Well, there's I don't a know. challenge. I mean, every once in a while you see it, you know. There's a challenge for all the writers out there. Plot yeah. and sex from Julia <laughs> Jordan. Uh, thank you so much for being here. And again, thank you for all the work that you're doing. Go uh, look up the lilies and check out the Count's fascinating information. A little frightening at times, but it will slap you in the face. And I know for me, the awareness thing, you know, I often, uh, you should go back, everybody, and listen to the Lynn Aaron's podcast that she did with me when I asked her a very similar question. And she asked me right on that podcast how many men and how many women had been in my podcast. And uh-huh. I didn't know the answer. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we looked it up, and it was a little more skewed towards men. Yeah. And she wasn't pointing a finger at me, but she was saying, just be aware of that. And it's something we're very aware of now. So... All of you out there, be more aware of the choices you make when hiring, when picking your podcast guests, and we can all make a difference. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.